Well, make sure you have your Bibles open to John 5, and while you're at it, look over at the person beside you and make sure they have their Bible open to John 5, and if not, rebuke them gently in love, maybe open it for them, but make sure you're there. Anything that I have uh, to say really uh, comes from this book, anything good at least. Nothing good happens here today as part, as part of this worship service without the truth of the divine word of God. Um, God still speaks, amen? He still speaks through his word, through that book. All of John 5 is part of one event. Uh, Jesus stirred things up among the religious leaders and he healed the invalid on the Sabbath. And as a result, much of chapter 5 is Jesus teaching these men who wanted to kill him. Jesus reveres his father and the father adores his son so much that they always work in concert with one another. Their purpose and plan is united, both powerfully working out redemption for sinners where dead people are made alive by grace. Believe it or not, there are living dead people, living dead people. And to be a living alive person, you must receive life only through Jesus Christ We can have eternal life now. It's for us now, and yet the promise of it coming in full is in the future then. The hour will soon be here when everyone who has ever lived from the unborn child to Methuselah will be judged by Jesus, some to life, some to condemnation. We ended last time with a simple conclusion. Hear the gospel, believe the gospel, Live forever in the joy of the gospel. And now we arrive at verses 30 through 47. It'll be a two-part message where Jesus continued to teach these same angry Jews that want him dead. He reasoned and appealed and rebuked them. So what authentication or endorsement does Jesus have to to make such dogmatic statements about judgment? He's very clear about judgment, but what gives him the right to say that kind of stuff? If you're going to go around talking like this, you better have some backing, some authorization. Now, you could group verse 30 with the preceding paragraph because it addresses the judgment of Jesus. But let's just start there in verse 30. Some of your Bibles might put it with the last section. And uh, let's begin to see what authentication and endorsements back the judgment of Jesus Christ. Jesus is an honorable and just judge. Jesus is an honorable and just judge. Jesus said in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. Which again underscored his unity with the Father. Remember he had just told the Jews in verse 19, the Son can do nothing. Nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So because of the unity of God, Jesus is therefore a perpetually just, objective, and impartial judge. I think we can agree on this. Impartial judges are good, right? You don't want a partial judge. I gave you a bag with some, with some stuff in it and left it in your office. Done. You know, you don't want judges like that. You want just judges, objective judges, judges that rule by the letter of the law and are accurate. We agree. The remainder of verse 30, 
will be more powerful if we understand and know what Jesus said before verse 30. Jesus made himself equal with God. He does what he sees his father doing. The father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing, entrusts all judgment to the son, and expects his son to be honored like he is. So when Jesus said in verse 30, as I hear, I judge, it fit with all the other verses. He hears God, he sees the will and purpose of God, he understands the justice of God, and judges according to God himself. What could be more honorable and just than that? Jesus said in John 8, 16, My judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So Jesus said his judgment is just. Well, how do we know that it is just? How do we know that he's a good, impartial judge? He continued, Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The judgment of Jesus is not contaminated with self-interest, as are so many judgments of so many leaders. How many other leaders judge by self-promotion or self-preservation rather than righteousness? The list is way too long. Well, that's not Jesus. He judges with perfect justice and impartiality according to the will and purpose of God. In him is no prejudice, no partiality, and no perversion. Now, what if Jesus was the Supreme Court justice in the Han case? I think things would go correctly. Before his death, Moses recited a song to Israel. They were singing people. And one line goes like this, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God is just, and therefore the judgment based upon God is also just. Isaiah 11, 3 and 4 refer to Jesus, the judge, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness, righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. To give the judge anything less than uppermost honor and admiration is to be in eternal contempt. Please don't go through life believing you can disregard and dishonor Jesus and then expect to bribe him on judgment day with your good works. He is just. He will not be bribed nor accept the insufficient payment of our best works to satisfy the divine justice of God. There is nothing we can do or or anything that we can just start to do better that will mitigate the justice of God and absolve our own guilt. Nothing. There's nothing out there that you can do. But here's what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him 
who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus can judge you perfectly righteous, absolve you of all of your guilt because of what he did on the cross. The absolution of your guilt is completely and legally just and fair and right because God poured out his divine judgment and wrath upon Jesus on the cross so that he could legally and fully justify every sinner who believes in his son. For those without Jesus, the only fair thing, the only right thing, the only just thing for the judge to do is to condemn for eternity. Now to the question, what endorsement does Jesus have to make that kind of severe judgment? What kind of endorsement does Jesus have to declare sinners who are unrighteous to declare them as completely righteous in God's sight? Completely absolved of all guilt. They came into the courtroom guilty. They leave the courtroom not guilty. Forgiven and credited 100% righteous. What authority does Jesus have to say, I can condemn some to eternal hell and I can condemn others as completely, or not condemn others, and declare them as completely righteous? You gotta give us something, Jesus. Another bears witness about Jesus. Another bears witness about Jesus. Jesus does not testify to his authority by himself. You know how job interviews go, right? You, um, you prepare mentally. And you make sure that you know about the company, you know about the position, and about the, the corporate culture there, and how you'd make a good addition to the team. And so you might comb your hair, or might uh, take a shower for once, and might put on a suit or something. And, and you go in, and uh, you, you go in to the person who's going to be interviewing you, and uh, you want to talk with them about your qualifications for the job, of why you're fit to be hired on. And uh, so you want to show, as best as you can, your qualifications for the job, that you're suitable for the company and the position. And let's say, during that interview, the CEO or the owner of the company walks into the office where you're having the interview and says to the interviewer, well, here's a good one. That's a good one right there. You're going to want to be talking salary pretty soon with this, with this person. Now, do you think the interviewer would respond to that favorably? Do you think that, that would, the CEO's opinion would matter, that they want, you know, the CEO wants you on the team? Of course it would. Now, without that confirming reference, if you start bragging about how qualified you are, how in a few short years you might be able to replace the interviewer in their job, you know, that interviewer is going to very soon escort you probably to the parking lot. We don't have a position. Oh, it's been filled. Yeah, have a great day. Chances are the interviewer won't be won't be too pleased with that, but when the CEO backs you up, when the owner backs you up, uh, that's a game changer. You're probably getting that position. Jesus said in verses 31 and 32, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, first understand why having Another witness is important here. The, the plurality of witnesses was established long ago in the Old Testament. Okay, if you go back to Deuteronomy 19.15, you'll find this principle. A single witness 
shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, I, I think we can all see why that's probably a good rule. One guy comes into town and says, this guy murdered my sister or whatever. And he's like, I didn't, what? I didn't. And he's the only one that says it. It's suspect. But if he's got several other guys that says, we were there. We saw it from the town square. It absolutely happened. Well, then that's, that's a game changer. Now, Jesus didn't commit a crime, but he knew the importance of the plurality of witnesses, multiple witnesses. Second, understand what Jesus does not mean in verse 31. He does not mean that without a plurality of witnesses, his testimony is just automatically false. Most translations of verse 31 omit the word deemed. The NIV is one of them. They simply read, my testimony is not true. Singularity does not automatically disprove a testimony. Jesus recognized this when he answered the Pharisees in John 8, 14. Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Jesus has multiple witnesses. That he does have. But his witness standing alone is still true. Even if he was alone, he's still telling the truth. Singularity does not discount and automatically mean that a testimony is false if there's only one. So what does Jesus mean in verse 31? Third, without a plurality of witnesses, his testimony would likely be considered false. Now this is logical and would explain why the ESV inserts the word deemed. Without multiple witnesses, people would generally reject the testimony of Jesus. They would just write him off. You know, you're, you're some guy claiming to be Jesus or, or the, the Messiah or the Savior of the world. Yeah, and they just write him off. But what if he has more? What if he has a lot more? Well, I have good news. Jesus has another credible witness. Jesus mentions one in verse 32. Now, who is that other witness? Who's, who's given some, some clout here? Some say John the Baptist, who is mentioned in the context in the next few verses, and we remember his testimony, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was John's testimony to Jesus. But a few things suggest Jesus was not referring to John here. Look closely at verses 35, 36, and 37. In verse 35, Jesus said, John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now that sounds like either John is dead or that he is imprisoned and no longer in the public eye with his, with his witness. And so how could he, John, be bearing witness? Add in verse 36, which references the attesting works given to Jesus from the Father. And then in verse 37, Jesus said, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So Jesus is likely talking about the Father which we'll get to in a little bit. Jesus bears witness about himself, and the Father backs him up. It's conclusive. It's awesome evidence. But also, John the Baptist bore witness about Jesus. We won't spend much time here, because back in August, I preached two sermons on John the Baptist, which got into a lot of this material. So you can reference those if you'd like a review. But if you remember, the Jews sent priests and Levites to John. It was a, a great inquisition, if you will. 
and John denied being the Christ, but he said of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Another credible witness. Now, how might the Jews respond to if John the Baptist was the only other witness that Jesus has? Now, imagine a little boy telling you that he's the greatest baseball player in the world. And then he introduces you to his quiet little sidekick, Billy, who says, I agree with him. Okay, you're like, okay, with people like Andrew McCutcheon, all right, for the Pirates, center fielder, one of the best players in baseball, you're like, okay, kid, whatever. You know, you're not. It's just an early, it was just his buddy that he was saying that. That means very little, okay? If the only witnesses to Jesus are human His authority is suspect. Jesus said in verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. So if all that you have in your corner is a weird guy that wears dead camels and eats bugs, okay, you're not, that's not saying a whole lot. You're in trouble. But even John the Baptist's testimony was from God. From God. Verse 35 says, John was a burning and shining lamp. Lamp. A lamp shines, and that the Jews were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, that's a really cool verse because it references or alludes to something in the Psalms. Psalm 132, 17, a prophetic song written years before, which says this, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed, a lamp to shine for my anointed, to get the way pointing to my anointed, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. John was ignited by God to enlighten the path to Jesus Christ by proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins with which Jesus accomplished in himself. John was a notable figure, a famous figure. He had a huge following, and even he attested to Jesus Christ. Before we move on, there is something profound you need to see in verse 34. Ask yourself this question. Why on earth is Jesus continuing to talk to these guys? For what purpose? Turn and walk away, right? They've shown you no respect. They tried to kill you. They, they're not in a good frame of mind. They're stuck to their tradition and religion, and they can't see. Just walk away, man. Why does he stay? Well, God shows you his heart here. Remember, he's not talking to friendly people. And he says, but I say these things so that you may be saved. I say these things so that you may be saved with relentless devotion to truth. Jesus kept telling hostile men who he really is. John the Baptist was a way to build a bridge to these guys, to reveal the truth. This is a sermon in and of itself of God's relentless pursuit of sinners through the gospel. Jesus defended his authority, and by doing so, he was entreating them so they might be rescued from God's wrath and eternal judgment. Jesus was absolutely, rightfully hard on religious leaders of the day. But he always told them the truth. They couldn't get past their religion and tradition, but Jesus kept speaking. Jesus kept pressing in. 
Their hard and arrogant hearts, along with their religion and tradition, kept them from receiving Jesus. They couldn't see, and he's there just beckoning them to come, summoning them to see him as the truth. Do you remember John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why was Jesus even talking? Because salvation was at stake. He wanted to tell people the truth. Look to me. And I will take you to eternal life. I am eternal life. God bears witness about Jesus. God, the almighty God, bears witness about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus said in verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. Jesus doesn't need us to validate him. D.A. Carson wrote, Jesus himself did not depend on human testimony to establish who he was in his own mind. And I thought about that. Jesus is not insecure like you and I are. He doesn't need the affirming crowd to build his self-esteem. He doesn't need promotions. He doesn't need trophies. He doesn't need accolades or blog posts or news articles or magazine covers. What God the Father says about him is enough. What does God say? He recognizes me. I know who I am. Imagine how different we would all be. Just imagine this. If instead of valuing what everybody else thought, We just defined ourselves by what God thought of us. And I just want to say, as an aside, if that is the type of person you are, you're unstoppable. No one can kick you down. They didn't kick Jesus down because he was rooted so much in unity with his father and what his father thought that even when the screaming crowd who said crucify him was there, it's just unfazed. I'm going to do what my dad wants me to do because what he says matters. So maybe your dad failed you Maybe one of your mom failed you. Maybe your best friend failed you and stabbed you in the back. Maybe the world has rejected you. Maybe you're on the lower end of your career like path and people are succeeding and, and you're just not that great. And you say, man, do I need all of that? No. We need what God the Father says of us, how he defines us in Christ. And then if that is our identity, we're unstoppable. We will press on in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death. We remain on the mountain, so to speak, even in the valley because we have Jesus Christ. Sure, it was great to have a famous and prominent prophet like John affirm you. But Jesus said very poignantly in verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Now, if you've spent any time in the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon, you know it's absolutely beautiful. Beautiful. But if you've been to the Grand Canyon in Arizona, that takes your breath away. That takes your breath away. John's testimony was good, but there is a testimony that is much greater than John's. Jesus continued, verse 36, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Just look at how Jesus lived. Just study his life. There's no one like him. Study his 
biography very closely. No one like him. He told the lame to walk, and they did. He gave the blind their sight back. He raised people from the dead. He raised himself from the dead. Talk about sanction. Along with the signs and wonders, his teaching and obedience to God confirmed his authority. All of his life and works point to the will and purpose of the Father who sent him. His life bore witness about him. Just look at his life. God the Father laid out a full itinerary and schedule for Jesus with incredible accomplishments. Just, just massive accomplishments. And Jesus honored and is honoring all of it. All of it. All the works of Jesus built to the apex of the cross and resurrection, the final seal of his true identity. One capstone miracle set it all, the resurrection. He is alive. In John 17, 4, Jesus said something really big to God the Father in a prayer. He said, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He did it all. He got it done. Each work provides powerful and convincing witness about him. In verse 37, Jesus makes a huge point. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. God's opinion matters. God's opinion matters. That's probably the understatement of the century. I mean, God's opinion matters. God is the most trustworthy witness Jesus has. God is credible. Believe him. Believe him. Look to the sun and believe. Put your life on it. Stake your life on it. Now, there are varying opinions of what Jesus meant in verse 37, but I think the strongest is this. The father bore witness to Jesus at his baptism. At his baptism. John indirectly mentioned Jesus' baptism earlier in John 1, 31 through 34, where John the Baptist said this, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see... You see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Notice that God told John that he needed to see. Like senses involved here. Experience involved here. See the Spirit descend and remain. And notice John saw it. That's exactly what happened to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is a powerful attestation to the authority of Jesus Christ. Another reason I think verse 37 alludes to the baptism of Jesus is the rest of the verse. Jesus told the hostile Jews, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. Now if you remember, at the baptism of Jesus, what came from heaven? A voice. A voice. From heaven, from the Father, saying, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Or as Matthew put it, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus and John, the Baptist, heard the voice, the confirming voice of God from the heavens. Something else is interesting. 
Luke also mentioned the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus in bodily form. Bodily form, like a dove, which John the Baptist saw with his own eyes. He saw it. And that squares with John 1, 31 through 34, which we just looked at. And Jesus had just mentioned John the Baptist's testimony in John 5. So I think he's referring to the, the affirmation at the baptism of Jesus. So if you look earlier in John and to the other Gospels, not only do you find the authenticating voice of God from heaven being heard, but you see the Spirit of God in bodily form descending on Jesus and being seen, perceived by the senses. And here in verse 37, Jesus said to the Jews, you never heard his voice. How are you to know? How can you tell me I'm not the Christ when God himself from heaven gave attestation to me. In fact, the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on me as a dove. How can you be more authoritative than God himself? That's what he's saying. You've you've never seen his form. One more connection that we'll get to in a little bit more detail next week, so this is a sneak peek. The Jews revered Moses, and Jesus brought Moses into the conversation later on in verses 45 through 47 as another witness. Exodus 33:11 says God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Moses conversed with God. That's amazing. And God, uh, he also wanted to, God to reveal his glory to him. And so he asked God to see his glory and God allowed Moses to see his back. Just his back because can't see the face or Moses is dying. And so just that little glimpse of the glory of God, Moses sees God and Moses' face is aglow. Moses talked with God, Moses saw God, and Moses bore witness in all of his writings about Jesus Christ. The evidence for Jesus is mounting. It's mounting. Jesus was building the case for his own authority. The courtroom is filled with validating witnesses and the most powerful witness is God himself and the completed works he gave Jesus to do. Here's how we'll wrap this up. Everyone follows something. Everyone follows something. Could be anything, really. In America, most people just follow themselves. They are their own authority. If they want to do something, that's what they do. They answer to themselves only. That's America for you. They may even fashion God after what they want him to be essentially rejecting absolute authority or truth outside of themselves. Moral relativism relativism rules the day. If you just look at the church in America, I would say primarily the church fashions God after what they want God to be, not after what he actually is. And if you do that, you make your own perception of God in fashioning him what you want him to be, you make that the ultimate authority and not God himself. So you'll hear God, you'll hear Jesus all over America and in the church, but if you listen closely, you'll start to hear that people have just shaped God into a God that they want, not the God who is. It's very dangerous, happens all the time. It's moral relativism in the church. When you follow someone or something, you are essentially attributing absolute authority to that person or thing that you follow. So if you live to please yourself, then you ascribe absolute authority to you. You're the authority. You ultimately decide. Have we more certification than God's son? 
Let's say your life is consumed with pleasing people. If you're like me, you tend to slip into this, just want to please people. And sometimes that takes you, as you know, into very dangerous ground. So let's say you want to please people. Very popular struggle. That ambition of wanting to please people at all costs is essentially ascribing absolute authority to the opinions of other people. Do others have more validation than Jesus? More authority to judge you than Jesus does? We need to think deeply about what we're really living for. What are you living for? Really? Strip away all the stuff. What are you living for? What do you chase after the most? What is most and what do you enjoy the most? What are you really living for? And ask yourself if what you're following and living for is really worth following. Will it take you to good places that you desire? Everyone follows someone or something. There's a man in Australia named Alan John Miller or AJ who claims to be Jesus. He's accumulating followers through online media and international exposure. And his few devoted followers, they're so blind. They're so blind. So taken by this man. They're so vulnerable because their biblical discernment is so anemic. They don't know their Bibles. In just a little bit of hearing this man, I'm like, oh, come on. Really? His very words are disproving. Jesus could never be that guy. What's wrong with you people? Listen to what AJ says verifies his authority as Jesus. Quote, there's probably a million people who say they're Jesus and most of them are in asylums. But one of us has to be. How do I know I am? Because I remember everything about my life. What? What? Oftentimes, cult leaders mobilize a following because they depart from the authority of the Bible, mix in their own confused doctrine, and testify to themselves with no authenticating witnesses, no miracles, no resurrection, no voice from heaven, no forerunning prophet, nothing but their own attestation or the attestation of their confused followers. They assert authority and control like a puppeteer and oftentimes withdraw from society and culture a strategy much different than what God gave us in the Great Commission, to go out into culture freely, not living on a compound in the middle of nowhere, and engage with people, stand for the truth in freedom. Miller's teachings, interestingly enough, emphasize feelings. Feelings, that's what you hear, feelings, feelings, feel, feel. His followers seem to talk most about feelings and emotions, not rational and biblical thought. That's dangerous. Your feelings will mislead you. And so will your thinking, unless it's redeemed biblical thinking. A husband staging an intervention with his wife. This is serious stuff that impacts people, okay? Intervention staged because the wife got mixed up in Miller's teachings. And during the interve- intervention, the, the cult expert asked her this question. How can you be sure that Miller is in fact Jesus? That is an awesome question. Awesome question. She answered that his teachings make her feel good. We don't follow Jesus Christ, God's son, because his teachings make us feel good. We follow him because he is rational, absolute truth, and his tomb is empty. No one has yet to produce the body of the famous Jesus of Nazareth. 
You show me a body, I told the students this. You show me a body that's authentically Jesus Christ, I will leave the Christian faith and become a complete hedonist. But I'll never do that. Because they'll never produce the body because he's alive. It just won't happen. Sadly, one of the children under Miller's influence asked him an extremely easy question, one that the omniscient Jesus, the real Jesus, would have no problem answering. The child asked AJ if God is a mom and dad. And to, you got to hear how he answers this precious little girl. To the laughs of the group that was around him, as they're laughing, he says, now that is the hardest possible question I can answer. I've lived now for 2,000 years and I don't know the answer to that question. Just put on your biblical thinking cap. This is not hard. Doesn't Jesus know all things? Doesn't Jesus live in perfect unity with his Father? The point is this, folks. Be rational and ensure that what you follow has a plurality of witnesses, most important of which is God's credible witness. Follow what God testifies to. Everything else will get you in a massive trouble. Discern everything by the truth of Jesus. Sure other things uh, will claim to be your functional Messiah to get you out of your somehow living hell of whatever it is and they will claim to be able to, to get you out of that and, and be the Savior. And so we chase after money and wealth and fame and you know whatever it is in order to be delivered in some way, but none of them have the demonstrations and proofs that Jesus Christ has. What are you following and what authority and endorsement does it have? Consider these seven attesting witnesses to Jesus. I pulled the list from the ESV study Bible. John the Baptist is one witness. The works of Jesus, God the Father, the scriptures, his own words, the spirit, and the disciples. Seven incredibly distinctive, unique authenticating witnesses to the authority of Jesus Christ. You have every reason to put your full confidence in Christ. In time, he will judge you. And the verdict has everything to do with how you respond to him now. Trust him. Follow him. Next week, we'll look into Jesus' tough words for these Jews. He continues and he turns the heat up. Jesus told the tough truth. Jesus isn't nice as we understand the word. He's not a nice guy, but he is truthful. And he's extremely helpful. Jesus was never afraid to state the truth. So get ready for some tough truth next week. But it's glorious. It's glorious. So you don't want to miss it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your glorious truth. Uh, thank you for Jesus Christ who told the truth. And who is authenticated, God, by you. And by the works that he did. Um, what can we say? There's an overwhelming amount of evidence that points to Jesus Christ as the Son of God. But there are people who look at that evidence and say, that's not enough to convince me. And they reject you. So I pray that at Jerusalem, we would be filled with people who look at that evidence and say, yes, yes, that is totally logical and reasonable. Will you open our hearts to believe in Jesus Christ and his authority? Because he is the judge and he deserves all honor. And there's a reason why and he's told us. So God, help us to see clearly your gospel. Impact people here. That they would then impact 
other people to stand for this truth. God, we love you. You're an amazing God. In Jesus' name, amen.